It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. So our podcast is called Cyber, and we talk a lot about spies and malware. And as much as I like talking to our very prolific motherboard crew, who else better to talk spicy about the intelligence industrial complex than our next guest? Our breaking news this evening is the identity of the man who sent the Obama administration into defend and explain mode this week. His name is Edward Snowden. He is a lawbreaker. He violated American law. I think they're going to say, I've committed grave crimes. I've, you know, violated the Espionage Act. Uh, they're going to say, you know, I've, I've uh, aided our enemies. In 2013, Edward Snowden pilfered thousands of top secret documents from the NSA and its spy partners, then fled to Hong Kong, where he gave them to two journalists. The rest, as they say, was the NSA's worst nightmare. But from those leaks and countless slides, we citizens of the world got to see for ourselves what modern mass surveillance truly looked like. Six years later, he's now living in Moscow after the Russian government granted him political asylum. From there, Snowden started working with the Freedom of the Press Foundation and sometimes tweets about the news. Today, we got Snowden to log on to an encrypted chat app to talk about his life in Russia, his thoughts on the arrest of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, the state of press freedom in the United States and around the world, and the charm offensive mounted on social media by spy agencies such as the NSA and its British counterpart, GCHQ. I'm Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. Well, thanks for coming on Cyber, Ed. I, I was told I can call you Ed. Is that chill? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's good to be here. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll use Ben. Yeah, Ben. Uh, my mom calls me Benny, but I think we should probably just keep it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's for later. <laughs> that's exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm interested. I want to know. It's almost six years to, I guess, the month by June, right? Since your disclosures. Yeah. How does it feel? Did you expect you'd be where you are in Moscow right now? No, no. I mean, it, it's funny because, you know, uh, sort of growing up in the intelligence community, um, Russia is just this terrifying place. You know, it's, it's, it's Mordor. Um, and I hadn't worked, uh, Russia's a target. I had worked East Asia in my operational phase. So, uh, you know, I had a little bit of familiarity uh, with like Japanese and, and a little bit of Mandarin Chinese, but I'd never used Russian, didn't really understand anything about it. And, uh, you know, I never planned to be in Russia. Uh, but when I was leaving Hong Kong, uh, en route to Ecuador, ironically enough, given the uh, <laughs> circumstances. Yeah, we'll see how long uh, that would have John lasted Kerry anyway. canceled my passport, right? And yeah. so now I'm trapped in Russia. Uh, and the funny thing is, you know, uh, I, I had always worked uh, overseas whenever I got the chance. You know, I was stationed in Switzerland and traveled throughout Europe. And then I was stationed outside Tokyo at an Air Force base. Um, and so, you know, it... it Living overseas wasn't uh, a surprise to me. It wasn't unusual, but uh, Russia was definitely uh, definitely the biggest and most unexpected change. Gavriil Paruski? Niminoga. I know, like, ya canadiets. <laughs> I've been to, I've actually have, been to Boston uh, a lot. I restaurant Russian, but because all my work and my contacts are, uh, you know, English-speaking, um, it's not as good as it should be. So, I mean, one question people were asking me when I said I was interviewing was, they want to know, what do you do day to day? I mean, I'm assuming you're not cooking spaghetti with your girlfriend all day anymore. <laughs> well, not all day. But yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, we, 
we live together, um, and it's 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 actually really nice. Uh, you know, I expected um, life was going to be a lot harder. You know, I, I expected to end up in, in Guantanamo, mm-hmm. um, and so life has actually become uh, quite normal. Um, the majority of my life uh, is my work at the Freedom of the Press Foundation, um, where I'm the the president of the board there, um, and we work on technology. Uh, basically to make the uh, just the effective uh, day-to-day work of journalism a little bit easier, a little bit safer, a little bit more secure because it's becoming so much more difficult because journalists are being treated uh, increasingly as legitimate targets, right, for all these different foreign intelligence agencies, for all of these authoritarian regimes. And increasingly, uh, we've seen even just for corporations – um, if you look at uh, even academic researchers, uh, such as in the case of uh, Citizen Lab, uh, you have these groups like Black Cube that are being hired by, you know, who knows? Black Cube is a private intelligence firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're going after academics and journalists, uh, even people at think tanks and, uh, you know, just general policy circles. Um, and, and they're trying to uh, get them to say something that would be incriminating. So they can discredit their reporting or their research. Um, and, and so the, the question becomes, you know, what do we do about this? What can we do about this? And how do we avoid, um, unfortunately, the, the direction that we're headed in, which is an arms race uh, between ordinary people and ordinary journalists and ordinary academics and these very uh, well-resourced corporations and, you know, governments um, because we're going to lose, right? Um, but if it's a fight that we haven't asked for and it's a fight that we have um, sort of no choice but to engage in, uh, we're going to have to do our best. Uh, and unfortunately, that takes up a lot of time. So when you were inside the intelligence community, did you ever see, let's say, something like the NSA targeting journalists? Yeah, actually, this was uh, publicly reported in um, some of the stories that came out post-2013. Um, particularly journalists uh, in the Middle East uh, or like Al Jazeera, right? Because this this is one of the dangers, is is when a government starts to feel like they can decide uh, who is and is not a journalist, who sort of uh, deserves uh, a a journalistic protection, right? Um, And ultimately that that comes down to meaning, you know, are you American uh, or do you work for one of the largest uh, and sort of most privileged Western news agencies. And if that's not the case, right, they'll find an excuse or they'll find a justification or they they simply won't even ask or consider it. And they'll go, look, uh, this person's work to us, from our perspective as spies, has what we call foreign intelligence value. But to me, their report. So go ahead, sorry. But to me, it's, it's, you know, I'm I'm obviously an active journalist and, and Motherboard does a lot of a lot of work that I, I know governments would be interested in. To me, uh, my perspective is always, all I can do is slow them down because if they really want it, yeah. they're going to get it. So I have to be able to just sort of sandbox it as much as possible in order to just, you know, maybe by the time they get to it, it doesn't matter anymore. Well, it's a yes and no. I mean, that, that's partially true, but the idea that you can't do anything and the idea that you can't keep yourself from being hacked um, is actually not true. Um, the question is, who can you stop from being hacked? How long can you stop them from hacking you? Uh, and what level of resourcing and budget and manpower are they going to have to allocate against you, 
uh, is an individual target with all of your different precautions to get what they really want, right? Uh, if you use a stock iPhone and use stock apps and everything like that, uh, they can get you uh, pretty easily nowadays because unfortunately every sort of iPhone uh, is, is running an app called iMessage underneath it. Um, and, and that's, we're finding tremendously vulnerable. Uh, and that's not the case that we thought in the past because the encryption that it uses is, is quite good. Um, but what happens is this means basically uh, the Apple ecosystem is a monoculture, which means every iPhone uh, has you know, the same operating system um, because people are actually patching, which is a good thing, right? We want people to be up to date uh, with the most recent patches, but it also has the same stock suite of apps Right? It's got the same sort of firmwares. It's got all of these hidden programs that are running on every phone that you don't interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. And this is true whether you're using uh, Android or uh, Apple's iOS. Um, but the, the problem is with Android, it's, it's both a blessing and a curse. Android's uh, patching uh, sort of landscape is an absolute disaster um, because all of these manufacturers, uh, they create these phones, they sell these phones, and then two or three years later, they abandon them, they stop patching them. And the people who actually provide the software, right, uh, that is running on the very low level of your phone, um, these are the things that are controlling like the, uh, the radios that connect you to cell phone towers or the Wi-Fi hotspots, right, that are they're on all the time and active. Um, the, the basic features of the phone, uh, these can't, be updated uh, by the actual uh, phone vendor, they have to be updated by the chipset vendor, people like Qualcomm, right? That nobody's, average people haven't really heard of Qualcomm, but they make the, the chips, right? Like Intel makes them for laptops, you see, you know, Intel on side on all these things. I mean, what you're uh, describing Qualcomm. too is, is like, it's a target platform as well for, right. for agencies. Right. All, these plays, right. all of these things are, are exploitable. But I mean, right. at the and same so time, you've got all this target surface that's on these phones. And for Android, it's not being patched, which is a disaster for older phones because everybody's vulnerable. But at the same time, because it's not a monoculture, every phone is broken in slightly different ways, right? Uh, so it's actually quite difficult for these exploit vendors to have a universal exploit that works against any Android phone because they all have different chips in them and they're from different vendors and they've got different apps on them. Uh, so it's hard to get sort of a skeleton key. Whereas what we found is Apple's taken security quite seriously, um, and they've been much better about privacy, for example, than Google. Um, but because every phone is running the same um, software, it creates a much juicier target for these now private companies that are operating out of places like Israel and France. Um, and they hire all of these guys called exploit developers, right? Which are basically just uh, sort of programmers and reverse engineers who use their, their, their powers for evil um, to look at the phone and just attack it and attack it and attack it. See if they can find something that breaks in a predictable way, in an unusual way when they do something basic, something fundamental that every phone has to do in order to function, like accept SMS messages, right? Mm -hmm. And this is what iMessage does on iPhones. And so what they've done is they've found ways to basically send uh, evil SMSs to iPhones. Um, and this will then uh, load uh, arbitrary code, right? Code that is written by the attacker, by these spies, uh, by these corporate intelligence agencies, whatever, um, by, you know, by, by the Saudis in the case of 
uh, sorry, uh, Jamal Khashoggi's uh, circle of contacts. Um, and this will allow them to take over your phone to the point that, you know, you carry it around in your pocket. You paid for it. Uh, but now the attacker, they own it. They can turn the camera on. They can turn the microphone on. They can get all of your contacts. They can get everything that you've saved, uh, all of your uh, messages, every file that's on the phone, and they can take it back home and they can get constant updates. Whatever's on the screen, you know, they can take a screenshot of at any time and they can see what you're doing. And this is the new state of play. And until we see uh, sort of Apple really pick up the pace here to harden um, these basic functions, hopefully in the new iOS revision, um, and really change the way uh, iMessage I parses um, incoming texts, uh, this is going to be an ongoing problem. And it's really dangerous uh, because iPhones are used basically by everybody. And uh, journalists. In, right, in, in journalism and uh, in government, in policy, right? Uh, everybody who's kind of rich, they seem to like iPhones. Yeah. Now, I mean, speaking of press freedom, there's something that's happened recently in the news with Julian Assange, which I know a lot of people immediately thought of you as well, because, you know, as you are, you're in asylum right now. Julian Assange, the founder of the anti-secrecy organization WikiLeaks, was arrested this morning in London, seven years after taking refuge in an embassy there. The United States will seek his extradition on federal charges unsealed this morning in connection with an enormous leak of American intelligence nearly a decade ago. What was your perspective on how the U.S. media has been dealing with this situation in particular, and how do you think this affects press freedom? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really disheartening to see this happen for uh, a number of different reasons. Um, one, when you look at the timeline behind, excuse me, Ecuador's decision to revoke asylum from Julian Assange in the first place, uh, they got a loan from the IMF for some ridiculous amount of money, like $4.2 billion, uh, one month before they, they decided to do this. Um, and then the week after, uh, Julian has been kicked out of the embassy, right, and taken off to prison uh, for uh, his, his work with uh, the Chelsea Manning disclosures back in 2010. Um, we have Ecuador's president going to the United States to sort of get a pat on the back and, uh, you know, a nice job and whatever, you know, reward we'll hear about in 15 years. Um, but journalists who have been covering this story, they, they aren't really looking at that because Julian, um, as an individual, is, is such a tragically flawed figure, right? Uh, and yeah, when, he's actually trolled I, me before, and I, I still don't agree with what's been happening to him. Right. So uh, for people who haven't been following the case, it's... Um, it's really unusual because when people think of uh, Julian Assange and, you know, a lot of Americans uh, now hate Julian, even though uh, sort of people who are on the, the center to the left part of the spectrum uh, had been singing his praises during the Bush administration. Uh, now they're on the other side because of his sort of unfortunate political choices in the 2016 election. Um, but his, his journalism, right, uh, is, is quite difficult um, I think, to criticize. Because, look, when you talk about uh, the emails that played such a big story in the, the 2016 election cycle, uh, these were reported on by basically every major news agency. Everybody. Absolutely right. everybody. This wasn't just a WikiLeaks thing. This was the New York Times, the Washington Post, Der Spiegel, the Guardian. Everybody covered this because it was of profound public interest, right? Like, it wasn't even a question. These were sort of the hidden workings of power. And the story said things like, uh, the DNC, right, the, the core of the Democratic 
formal Democratic Party infrastructure, uh, had sort of aligned in secret to, to rig the uh, primary against Bernie Sanders, right? And it's not that, you know, no one imagined that was possible. A lot of people believed uh, that that was the case, but no one could actually prove it, right, until you have some kind of documentation. Um, and and this, this is the kind of thing where, like, you know, regardless of whether you like it or not, regardless of whether you disagree with, um, you know, the impact that it had on the, the election, right, journalists are not supposed to throw in. Um, with sort of one side. And I think this is one of the criticisms that Julian gets is people rightfully see him as very much against Clinton because they have a history, right? It's so difficult to see how they can justify this charge at this moment uh, in the absence of what is obvious, which is that the political winds have turned against Julian Assange as an individual, right? He's very much disliked and that makes it very unpopular to defend him. But journalists very much need to sort of uh, hold their nose and do this, even if they don't like the guy personally, um, because, as you say, the, the entanglements that this causes um, and the problems it creates for their work. Because when you look at this charge, right, what the government has actually charged is something that has been publicly known for nearly a decade now. Um, the chat logs of the sort of famous exchange between uh, Chelsea Manning um, who was the source of the 2010 uh, disclosure, and someone who is alleged to be Julian Assange, but was actually using uh, a secure and anonymous messenger um, uh, called Jabber, using a protocol called Off the Record, right, which is mm -hmm. actually supposed to provide uh, capabilities like plausibility. Uh, it's trivial to forge these chat logs, um, but but anyway, putting putting that aside. Uh, you know, even if you believe this is a smoking gun, it says, you know, Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange, uh, you know, in the foyer with the candlestick. The crime that they're alleged, uh, that they're alleging happened is Chelsea Manning uh, took what is called a password hash, um, which is basically just uh, an encoded form um, of a password. Uh, so it's not just, uh, you know... <laughs> written on a hard drive, like, you know, say mm -hmm. your password is kitty mittens. You know, you don't have kitty mittens written anywhere on the hard drive. You've instead got this encoded form. And so to be able to reverse that uh, by attacking it, by breaking it, to reveal what the actual password is so you can use it to log in, um, this was provided by Manning to this person who's alleged to be Assange. Um, and this person said, you know, hey, I'll take a look at it. I'll pass this to my guy who knows something about us. They'll attack it and we'll see if we can get in it, right? Um, but according to the FBI... They're not even sure if it happened. No, 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 no. That was in the indictment. Yeah. They weren't sure that it happened. In the affidavit, they actually say that it did not happen. Uh, they directly say, look, they did forensics on Manning's system that this was pulled for. Uh, the hash was for uh, a service account. Um, this is for like a, a program to use on the computer uh, for an FTP program. Uh, and it was not logged into, right? So they, they had not actually succeeded in breaking this. They had not used it, but the governor is alleging just the sheer fact that Manning said, hey, can you find out what this password is? And if you can, give it back to me. Um, you know, it, it's not even really Assange's idea from the, the chat log, as far as we can tell. Uh, and the DOJ is going, look, you know, this is a crime. We're going to charge it. Just the, they call it a password cracking agreement. Which is, uh, is just, enough. Is, is to, enough to indict so, someone. Right, right. Even if it's not used to, to get access to more classified material, uh, and the government says they believed it was only used 
uh, to sort of cover Manning's tracks. Manning didn't want to be logging in with like username Chelsea Manning, right, and doing whatever. So they wanted to use this sort of anonymous account um, to do it. And so here's here's why I think this is such a problem. Uh, what we have is an allegation from the DOJ um, that Julian Assange was a part of a conspiracy to break a law, right? And this is actually, when you think about the law, right, this is actually a pretty low-level infraction relative to the things Assange has been accused of in his life. Yeah. Um, And then, uh, even though they're saying they sort of conspired to break this law, it didn't actually happen. For whatever reason, because of fate, because of incompetence, whatever reason, they weren't successful in actually committing the crime, but the conspiracy is enough. Now, there's another big story in the news right now you might have heard of called the Mueller report, right? (laughs) I was about to ask your take on it. (laughs) Right. And and so the the main thing on the Mueller report is, you know, there's two big parts of it, as I understand it. I haven't read every page of it, right? But I've read the report. I mean, it would take like 12 hours, at least. We, Vice News, read it all in one shot. And I think, and they they broadcasted it. It was was pretty hilarious. And it was 12 and a half hours. So you know none of these journalists who are shooting off about it actually read the whole thing because it takes 12 <laughs> right, hours. Right, right. <laughs> but, but look, the, the broad outlines are pretty well agreed on uh, by the few people, I suppose, who have read this and are, you know, analyzing it for the rest of us normals. Yeah. Um, and so they say the report breaks it down into two parts. Um, one is sort of the, the Russian side, right, which is about Russian electoral interference, which is basically like uh, trolls posting stupid Facebook ads and like bad memes on Twitter. Uh, to try to change votes, you know, but they had like a low budget and they didn't reach out that much, but like they were definitely trying is what the report alleges, but they can't sort of pin that to Trump. Okay, whatever. Um, Then the other side is the sort of hacking and leaking thing where they're saying, look, the emails from 2016 uh, were sourced by their alleging Russian military intelligence, right? And then they're saying this was passed off to WikiLeaks. And what's interesting about this, because we're talking about WikiLeaks, right? Mm-hmm. The government's not charging WikiLeaks with this. The government's saying, you know, they don't have any evidence that WikiLeaks knew it was Russian military intelligence at the time. Um, so, like, Russian military intelligence got it, but they send it to WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks posts it because, you know, that's what WikiLeaks does. Of course they're going to post it. Um, but, again, they can't find a connection to Trump. So they're like, all right, well, you know, it, it sucks. Nobody likes him. But we can't nail him on that. But then there's this whole second half of the report on an entirely separate crime, right, which is the crime of obstruction. Um, And on this side, uh, the special counsel says they find 10 separate instances, I think, um, where it appears that Trump or people in his administration um, are basically conspiring to obstruct justice. But uh, the special counsel does not conclude, uh, again, like pin this to Trump, as breaking the law in a very interesting way, uh, given the context of what we're talking about. They go, look, Trump absolutely ordered all these people in his periphery to shut down, right? He tried to fire Mueller. He tried to get rid of, you know, all these other people. I can't remember if it was Sessions or whatever. Uh, But he tried and he told, like, his White House counsel, he told all these guys, uh, you know, stop this, get it done, protect me, you know, (laughs) shut this thing down, which is obviously obstruction, right? or at least a conspiracy to commit obstruction. But, uh, Mueller says, it didn't actually result in obstruction 
Because the people that Trump ordered to do this simply ignored him. They went off and they told their buddies, like, Trump is telling me to do crazy things. Uh, I'm preparing my resignation letter, all of these other things. And so they say, you know, Donald Trump didn't actually commit obstruction. And so we're not going to charge him, right? Maybe, maybe there's something in here that Congress wants to bring or whatever, but we're not going to bring it. And the attorney general, immediately when he saw this, you know, who, who's really sort of carrying water for Trump all, over, all day long on this issue. Oh, my God, uh, is he ever. It, right, right. It, he's like, uh, you know, spinning the reports, doing all these things. And he's like, look, we see this. And, you know, um, Mueller didn't charge this. We're not going to charge this. You know, <laughs> no obstruction, no collusion, whatever. Let's move on. But so isn't that interesting, right? Uh, the DOJ's defense of not charging Trump in this case is they say, look, he tried to commit a crime, but he was too hapless and he failed to actually do this. And we're not going to charge him for the conspiracy of doing it. And at the same time, they're charging Julian Assange under precisely the opposite theory, where they go, look, Julian may not have actually cracked the password. We don't have any evidence that he did. We're not even going to try to prove that he did. We're going to say simply that the agreement to try was enough. So this is a real question, the two-tiered system of justice. Why do we have this double standard here? Where if you're the president and you try to commit a crime, you can skate, right? But if you're a journalist, if you're a publisher, uh, particularly who's vulnerable because you've gone too far out on a limb and now you've lost public support and popularity, everybody's against you. But no one, no one can argue that the work that you've done in the past hasn't been uh, of real public interest, right? It, it may not have been, uh, in the interest of the United benefit States. Or party's benefit, right? It's very controversial, no doubt on that, right? But the newspapers are all running these stories and saying these are important stories, right? These are about real centers of power in the world. Why is it that journalists are being held to a higher standard of behavior than the president of the United States? Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Well, actually, I, was, I wanted to ask you that because it's something I keep noticing online is that there's various intelligence uh, people or people who are ex-intelligence who just openly hate both you and Julian Assange with the fire of a thousand burning suns. And <laughs> it, it, it's interesting to me, too, because these, these, these types of people have also become popularized during this Mueller report. And if you look back in 2013 when you made your disclosures, uh, the NSA had a, uh, had a, had a well-documented problem recruiting. Yeah. But now, what I find really wild is we look online on Instagram and, like, GCHQ has an Instagram account. The CIA <laughs> is tweeting pictures of puppies. Like, what the fuck is going on? What, when was this cool? <laughs> when, 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 did we, when did we decide our, our intelligence agencies can do this? Well, I, I think you see what's happened here is the intelligence agencies have drawn the wrong conclusions, at least from the public's perspective, um, from the backlash of 2013, right? Uh, in 2013, uh, the intelligence agencies uh, sort of uh, around the, the Anglophone developed world, right? The US, UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, 
uh, what's called the Five Eyes Network, uh, conspired to create a secret system of mass surveillance, right? This was performing a kind of bulk collection. The government likes to call it, that's their phrase for, for mass surveillance, uh, which means they were collecting records on all of our communications, right? You know, people listening to this podcast right now, going to a website, ordering something on Amazon, sending an email, uh, looking at porn. You know, whatever you're doing, um, if it's going across the big cables, right, the big backbones of the internet, which everybody's communications do, whether you like it or not, it is getting uh, what we call ingested into systems uh, that are run by these intelligence agencies. And then it's getting parsed and broken out and sessionized and packetized and all these things so they can chop up your communications and everybody else's communications and search through them uh, for anything they see that's interesting. Let's say your credit card number's on a list, your phone number's on a list. Uh, you're not on a list at all, right? But you send an email uh, and you mention the name of someone who is. That's called abouts collection, right? It's very controversial, um, but it actually happened. Um, things go through sort of this giant sieve and then analysts like me sitting in Hawaii are able to parse through this, right? And you can type anything in the world in, anybody's email address, anybody's anything, and it pops up on your screen. Um, and, and so when this happened, um, everybody immediately was like, look, this is a violation of at least the U.S. Constitution, its Fourth Amendment. Um, we actually had uh, sort of uh, a U.S. District Court of Appeals uh, rule that not only were these programs uh, unlawful, uh, but they were likely unconstitutional on that basis. And that means even if Congress tries to change the statute, right, they can't uh, because it's beyond their power. Instead, they have to amend the Constitution to permit it. The government flushed the case um, and they flushed the program to, to try to save this larger practice. And in the wake of doing that, right, this sort of damage control, they went, maybe the real story of 2013 isn't that we got caught breaking the law, we got caught violating everybody's rights, and so we should pull back a little bit. Um, instead, what we're going to do is we're going to try to change the laws to be more flexible, more accommodating, so we can do what we want. And at the same time, what we really have here is a PR issue. We have a branding issue, right? Um, and so, yes, this is, as you say, we, they get Twitter accounts, they get Instagram accounts and puppies and everything like that because they want to be friendly. They want to be on your side. And so the Trump presidency has very much been a gift um, to these people, uh, the sort of deep state, as you would call it. Um, <laughs> John because... Brennan has been uh, quite quiet since this Mueller report. <laughs> yeah, yeah suddenly, yeah, suddenly uh, he, he's got he, nothing to say. No, no moralistic diatribes to throw or to tweet at, uh, at the president. Right. So he's, he's immediately sort of scampered back under the log uh, because he was all over network news, uh, all the, the corporate media. You know, he's a, sort of a paid contributor on these shows now um, where he's using um, sort of this, this mantle uh, of authority that people presume um, from having, you know, a little lower third as you get introduced on the news show that says, you know, former director CIA and whatever. Uh, and he, he just insinuated all this stuff about how, you know, Trump did this and Trump did that and he's in bed with the Russians and he knows it's coming. Mueller's got it and he's going to nail this guy to the wall. And then, yeah, the report comes out and everybody's like, wait, wait, I, I thought you said, you know. <laughs> so so yeah, how does like, he avoid those questions, some... right? He hides under the wall. Yeah, it's, I, thought um, you, I thought you had some sort of secret knowledge that this was all going down. <laughs> I mean, right, I, what, I, what I find funny is that you have these characters who've popped up, and during the reporting in 2013, I think, you know, quite rightly, a lot of mainstream media and journalists were, 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 were investigating and looking at these figures and what they've been doing in the last few years. And then suddenly, I, I remember feeling like, am I in a weird parallel universe? Now <laughs> this person's being championed on Colbert? 
and everyone's just everyone in their in their in their their rush to 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 go after Trump just decided to accept any and anybody to 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 achieve that and it, it was it, it it kind of you know you looking at the modern media scape you you got to wonder where is the political affiliations now what what's going on and I mean, this is this is kind of uh, one of the things actually that gets back to Assange, um, for which he'll never be forgiven. Right? People focus so much on Assange uh, that they forget what's really important, which is why was Assange noteworthy at all? Why was he influential? Right? Why did anybody care uh, about this weird uh, Australian guy uh, who was trapped in an embassy, right, in in London? Um, and, and the answer, of course, is he printed things. Uh, that people needed to know, that people wanted to know, but the larger sort of more <laughs> more corporate media uh, would not touch. Um, and this was because of fears of backlash, because of, you know, this, that, or the other. Um, but whenever somebody else breaks the story first, then they'll dogpile on, right? Because the taboo's been broken. And now they go, okay, it's in the open, we can do it. Um, we actually saw the, the same kind of, um, the, the, the same kind of dynamic happen in reverse, um, with the Steele dossier, uh, right, which was all the salacious things about Donald Trump, um, where it had been shopped around to all these news organizations. Um, and none of them, uh, none of them would actually report on it and go, you know, is this credible? Is this not credible? Uh, until BuzzFeed put it out. And then once BuzzFeed did it, then everybody was talking about it, right? But there was also a problem here, um, which is we have so much today um, the journalism and politics of allegation, uh, of accusation, uh, rather than actual evidence. Uh, one of the things that is, uh, I, I think, quite disappointing to see about the Mueller report, um, for both sides, right, people who, who want to bury Trump and people who want to, you know, put him up on their, their shoulders and race him down the street uh, towards a parade, is there's no evidence in it. Uh, there's a ton of allegation. Right? But, but they don't actually say this is, you know, why we believe this. This is the sourcing of it. Uh, so we can look at the actual facts. The same thing with the Steele dossier, right? Uh, one of the reasons why it was so problematic to publish that and why it caused a backlash when it fell apart um, was the media who very much, like rightfully, the public, the public wanted to see Trump take a fall um, because his, his policies and even for the people who support him uh, will acknowledge uh, that his character, his morality, just his fundamental decency as a human being, right? It, it, it's, it's simply not there. Yeah, it's questionable at best. <laughs> well, not even questionable. Look, look, there are people out there uh, with red hats on right now uh, that are glad Donald Trump is in power, right? They're glad Republicans are in power. They'll do anything to keep uh, the left and Democrats out of power. And look, you know, they've picked their side. They have their politics. You might not agree with it, whatever. Uh, but at least it's a belief system. But even those people, right, um, even those people who are totally on side just because they want the power, look at Donald Trump and they go, look, this guy's a dick, right? We know he's a dick. Mm -hmm. We know he's a bad person. We know he's a terrible human being. But he's our terrible person, right? And, and we've seen this happen in, you know, country after country after country. Uh, you see it with Erdogan in Turkey. You know, you see it with Orban in Hungary. You see it with Putin in Russia, Right. Um, where these guys go, look, we know this guy's a villain, but we think he's an effective villain. We think he's, you know, our villain. In in this case, in the Trump case, he's not even uh, an effective villain. He's kind of a bumbler, right? But he does have uh, sort of power locked up here. 
But the, the problem is when you have someone you dislike so much that you're willing to set evidence to the side and simply believe any bad thing about them because you think it advances your cause, you're creating a massive vulnerability for yourself and your side. Because if it is not true, one of Donald Trump's few very effective political attacks for his side is fake news, right? It's saying the people, my opponents, the people on the other side, right, the people who want to change in government, they are liars, right? They are fabricators. They're inventing things to manipulate you, which is ironic because this is a guy who lies, you know, 50 times a day. But it's scary, uh, though, because what you have now is, I mean, Matt Taibbi puts this, he, he talks a lot about this, that, you know, this Mueller report and the, and the reporting around it is basically this generation's WMD story because ultimately it was nothing. And I, the, the trust, I think, that the, the, and the damage it's done, I, I really, I, I wonder going forward in my profession how we can sort of undo some of that, some of that uh, conspiracy and, and mistrust in readers and in viewers. Right. I, I think it's a little bit generous to say it, it, it's nothing, right? It, it's something. No, but, but I mean, it's, it's, it's not, not it's, enough. It's not, right? it's you, not enough. It's not, I guess what I'm trying right. to say is it wasn't the collusion, the smoking gun, right. the PP exactly. tape. It's the was promised. It, it, you, you know, know it, public was promised a knowing, exactly. reading, active conspiracy with the Russian government, right? Like a plot where he's a puppet. He's going to do all these exchanges. He's going to trade sanctions, you know. They had made deals. They have, you know, these morons, just absolute incapable morons like Carter Page, right, uh, who can't get through a news interview uh, without, you know, like just breaking out into the, the most guilty-looking sport. Or Flynn, like Flynn, right. how? Yeah, same same thing, right? Same thing. These guys, you know, they're, they're not the A-team. Um, but these individuals, right, these are the ones who we have folks like Rachel Maddow who have a tremendous audience, right? Turns out even the redacted version of the Mueller report is like a really good ragu. You know, it's just better the second day. And it's not just her, right? She, she gets singled out a lot, and sometimes unfairly, uh, but sometimes very fairly, uh, because of the aggression and the singular focus on a story beyond what the evidence supports. And it's this is that concept, again. Well, that's, they go that's, beyond what there's evidence for because they stopped caring about evidence. It became a struggle. It became an ideological battle of truth and light and justice versus the forces of darkness rather than, look, these are the facts, uh, and we need to follow the facts and get to what we can prove to hold these people to the full account of the law. And, and instead, what we have is if we have a kind of tribalism that is corroding and breaking down the bonds of fraternity that are tying together every society, right? This is happening in the United States, it's happening in Canada, it's happening in France, in Germany, in the UK, it's happening in Russia. It's even happening in places like China, right? Where you've got a single party state. Um, but even within that, like people are, they are ceasing to believe that we can even operate from a common set of facts because we are denying what is true and is provable because it is contrary to uh, our purposes, our intention, right? Our, our, our sort of uh, side of the battle. And we are fabricating or inventing sets of facts that we believe serve our argument. And when that happens on both sides, right, we lose the ability to have any kind of rational conversation or any kind of uh, policy exchange where we can actually 
work together um, and we can find a consensus and go, look, uh, I don't agree with you. I will oppose you. I will try to achieve my goals, but I will recognize that what you are doing is at least based on the truth. And I don't want to say, you know, Trump is a, a victim of this because he is very much one of the champions of, of modern untruths. Um, but the sad thing, the, the reality is he is getting hit with this same thing that he created, right? Um, and the problem is uh, if he was just getting his just desserts, right, his, his sort of uh, uh, earned reward, people might be okay with that. Might, they might think it's karmic justice, right? But once you've started that, it's Pandora's box. You can't put it back in. No one trusts the New York Times. No one trusts the Washington Post. No one trusts MSB, NBC or CNN. No one ever trusted Fox, right? And, and this is the thing. Who do you trust? Who can you trust in an environment where everybody and, and is motherboard. evaluating every motherboard. claim, every sentence through partisan lines? Motherboard. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> www.vice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, you know... I. I, I get called on on Twitter quite often. I get called a terrorist and a traitor because I'm 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 now I'm at, I'm in court right now with the RCMP in Canada because I I've refused to um, to comply so far with a production order to give up all this information on a on a dead ISIS source. Actually, I'm going I'm going to to court this week, or actually it'll be airing on the day I think I'm in court. And I also I just I wonder sometimes, you know, I I also do a lot of work on far right, and I get. I get people calling me, you know, a leftist or, you know, it, it, I can't go anywhere. It's just on Twitter, I just get attacked on either side. If I report on the far right or I, I report on, on, on terrorists because, or jihadists, because there just seems to be such a pendulum and nobody believes anything. Well, I, I think, you know, part of this, there, there's an observation bias, but there's also definitely a change in public narrative in the way that we connect and relate nowadays. Uh, one of the biggest mistakes of the media, uh, the wider media, right, from from uh, the small-time independent bloggy folks to the, the biggest plush, you know, million-dollar uh, salary sort of newsrooms, um, every time Trump has tweeted something, they've made it news. And or they react it to it. Again and again and again. Right, right, right. Where like, Subtweets. He and... tweeted this. He tweeted that. They have explainers about, like, what Twitter is, Right. Uh, and so now your grandparents, your parents, your kids, you know, your niece and nephew, everybody's going on Twitter because they want to see what it's all about, right? And so it, <laughs> the demographics of Twitter have shifted, right? Now everybody's on that, and that has been a representation uh, of people who are, they're not invested in the community, like they, they don't have any sort of connection to that. Uh, they're new arrivals. And this is something that, like, you have to accept, you have to absorb, you have to understand but I don't think any of the, the sort of public figures that have been so comfortable on Twitter the last couple of years have actually thought about that and realized what's happening. They've just seen it become harsher and harsher and harsher. And it's because these are new people who aren't used to this. They're not like there's a whole new influx and a whole new population that's looking at this. Um, but on, on that note, I think if you're not getting criticized from both sides, in this atmosphere where everything is hyper-partisan, uh, you're not being fair. Uh, because as a journalist, I, I think, who has a real commitment to simply what the facts say as opposed to what the desired narrative is, either for the journalist or their audience, um, 
you're going to piss everybody off every time you write a story. Or, you know, maybe this story won't do it, but the one you write next week will. Um, and this, I, I think, is it's unfortunate uh, that we have an audience now um, who takes everything personally. But the question is, can you blame them? When you look at what's happened uh, with this whole, you know, effort to sort of unseat Trump from the White House uh, through this Russian conspiracy narrative, it clearly didn't pan out, right? You know, now e even the Democrats, right, uh, the Democratic Party, who hates this guy, who will do anything to dethrone them, is going, all right, well, we struck out on Russia, but obstruction, we're going to get him on that now, right? And okay, fine, you know, whatever, but we have to have some accountability uh, for the fact that we have had the chairs of the uh, congressional intelligence committees, right, both in the House and the Senate, who are doing the same things as the John Brennans, as the James Clappers, uh, who are basically going, look, I've got a top secret clearance. If you knew what I knew, you know, you'd be ready to slap cuffs on this guy. Uh, but then the report comes out and everybody's like, where's the beef? <laughs> One thing I wanted to ask you, speaking of journalistic institutions, uh, were you disappointed to see when The Intercept closed down the Snowden Archive? Yeah. No, <laughs> I, I, I think the Leading most question. disappointing thing about this uh, was the fact that, that I learned about it from the news. Like, look, I am a source. Uh, I am not uh, a journalist, right? I don't work at The Intercept. I'm not on the board at Forest Look. Um, they don't owe me a vote on any of this. And I understand that, right? Uh, they're also not the sole custodians of this. Uh, Barton Gelman in the Washington Post, uh, he's got a copy, you know, um, the New York Times has copies, the Guardian has copies, Der Spiegel has copies, right? This is distributed. All these other news organizations have stopped uh, publishing for years uh, because it became more expensive and longer form work uh, instead of like the short, punchy news pieces which is what, you know, the large appetite is in, in, in journalism today. Uh, what remains in the archive, I believe, is stuff that is going to require much more substantial effort, um, basically book-length work, right? You need real researchers to sit down um, and to connect all the dots that you can't get across in 750 words, right? Um, and the Intercept really was not designed for that, uh, unfortunately. Uh, none of these news organizations were, and they were supposed to hand this off uh, to academic institutions. Um, but that just hasn't happened because the academic institutions get cold feet. They get nervous. They go, look, we're dependent on grants from the federal government in the U.S., right? And they don't want to give it to a foreign university because the politics of that, they're worried the government's, you know, going to complain and go, oh, you know, you're, you're giving this to whoever, um, and so I, I am sympathetic and I understand the ways their hands are bound. At the same time, uh, I, I don't think it would have been a lot to, to, be, to ask for, hey, you know, could you guys give me a call? Maybe, maybe ask my, my feelings on it. Just a quick uh, signal I, I've text. since talked to them, right, and I understand where it's at. But, yeah, you know, I, I think anybody would agree it wasn't well handled. Yeah, you know, just a quick signal text or you can Skype. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> I'm sure there would be just a ton of NSA all over that, but, uh, you know, I'm sure you're also used to that as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, I mean, it, it's not like I'm, uh, you know, in hiding. That's one of the funny things is people are always like, you know, uh, 
Edward Snowden from an undisclosed location. Like, I'm in my apartment, guys. I'm in Moscow. I say this all the time. It's not, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to tell you my street address. I don't want you to know where I live, right? But you don't announce, you know, your street address either. No, I definitely um, don't want people to know where I live. Right, right. You, I, you I, don't I, want I, your audience being like, oh, I didn't like that story, you know? Yeah, um, and I'm not, I mean, you're you're famous. I'm like, you know, I have, I have a podcast <laughs> right, but, you on know, that, that, that's That's kind of the thing, just where, where people are in this. But what I mean by that is, you know, I'm actually living a much more public and open life now. So, you know, I'm doing an interview with you right now. Yeah, exactly. Is the FBI getting a copy of this call? You know, almost certainly, but we're doing for the radio, so who cares? <laughs> Do you, when you saw the Assange thing go down, did you, did you all get a little like, oof, I really don't want that to happen to me? Uh, no, it was more the, the case where, <laughs> you know, I, I told you before, my, my plan had been to end up in Ecuador, Right. And yeah. I was thinking, Jesus, you know, <laughs> if John Kerry hadn't canceled my passport because he thought it would be an effective political attack to trap me in Russia because uh, they could sort of uh, smear me by association for the rest of my life, you know, I would be uh, in Guantanamo right now or dead. You know, <laughs> I probably wouldn't even made it uh, to this point because the CIA has a much freer hand in, in Latin America. Um, but that was really sort of more what I thought. Um, but, it, you know, the, the whole thing is it's not really about me. And this is the thing that's the most frustrating when we have these conversations with, you know, um, anybody, uh, because I'm a face, I'm a name that people recognize, right? Uh, they're always sympathetic, and I understand there's a human interest angle, and it, it's good for me, right? Like, it's, it's my political advisors, right? They're always like, oh, you know, you want people to connect, you want people to think positively of you. Um, but look, guys, I don't matter, right? The, the only thing I did that it was a real, you know, significant impact was sourcing this information to journalists. Like, I lost it by the time I was out of the hotel room or out of Hong Kong. Um, and from that point on, right, like, I can be an activist, I can be voice, I can talk from the sidelines. Um, but what happens to me uh, doesn't really matter. However, from my side, the reason I came forward, right, was not to make a better life for myself. I, I lit it on fire and, and really screwed myself. Um, but it was because there was something I believed in, right? Which is that we were going in the wrong direction, but it doesn't have to stay that way. We're at a fork in the road, right? In, in history right now. And we have a chance to turn toward what we see everybody doing right now. The whole reason we see this public embrace of all these spies and, you know, former CIA chiefs, and, you know, they're bringing them onto what were presumed to be liberal uh, channels and outlets and newspapers, Um and, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of glorifying these people. They're doing it in a very utilitarian way. They're going, I am afraid. I'm afraid of what my enemies will do with the powers they have. I am afraid of what the future will look like. I am afraid that the world is dangerous. And so I will make a pact with anyone who says they can help me, with anyone who says they can fight my enemies. And that's what these people are doing, right? But what happens is... Now we have given so much power and influence and agency to people who are literally trained to lie and subvert uh, <laughs> and basically damage um, democratic and, and sort of public processes for uh, sort of elite institutional processes. Because remember, the office of the presidency, right, the White House, um, is not an expression of democracy after the election, right? They, they have been granted powers democratically. 
but this is now in the hands of a group, an institution, an executive branch, uh, who is very much going to use this to political ends. And we would like to believe that they will use it for the purposes and the benefits of the public that has elected them, right? Uh, in a lot of cases, they do. But from the best to the worst presidency, they have all abused it. Obama abused it. Bush abused it. And Trump is setting the records on abusing it, right? Uh, I'm sure if you look back at Jimmy Carter, even Jimmy Carter did questionable things. Um, and are, so you the a, question, are you a Bernie 2020 guy? <laughs> you know, I, I don't endorse any candidates because I feel like, you know, I worry that it might be a kiss of death for them and cause more, more harm than good. Um, but the thing that I'll, I'll, I'll say about uh, Sanders here um, is that when you look at all of the people in the Democratic race right now, you, you, these sort of uh, corporate Democrats, you know, the Harris, the Booker, the Buttigieg, the um, Beto, you know, all these guys are, are, are fairly corporate, right? Uh, you've got Warren, who's, you know, a little bit less corporate, right? Um, and, and that's encouraging, but you also see the machine very much uh, aimed against her. Um, but, but Sanders and, and Warren, even though they, they seem to have a little bit of friction between them, because of course they're competing for the same spot on the ticket. Um, the thing that I like about some of these folks, uh, and particularly when you look at someone like Sanders, is you know what they believe in. Because... <laughs> You know, if you look at every crisis, if you look at every problem, if you look at every foreign policy abuse that the United States has been involved in for the last 50 years, uh, there's a picture of Bernie Sanders at a protest, uh, you know, 30 years ago, screaming about it. Um, and I think when you get to that age and you have that kind of established track record, you can go, look, I don't agree with all the man's policies. He might have things that are different but at least I understand who that person is. And that is not something that you can say uh, for a lot of these candidates who their policies and, and their beliefs are, are very much purchased and sponsored. Um, and I think that is the kind of politics um, that has led us to a Trump presidency. So one last question that is, you know, it's, it's, pretty controversial for you. I know you've tweeted about it in the past. And it's it's part of, you know, being an internationally renowned whistleblower. But I know that you, you used to get weird, spicy photographs on Twitter in your DMs. That's still <laughs> happening? You know, it's, that has mostly dried up, I think, because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm out of the headlines, which is a nice thing. Uh, you do, you do still get them sometimes, um, but it's actually a little bit, uh, uh, a little bit sad. It, it's not something where you're like, well, you know, that surprises. It's, it's from people who have, I, I think, pretty uh, profound mental health issues. Um, and that's, you know, that, that's part of the internet is you, you got all kinds of people out there and it might, you know, it, it might be the kind of thing that you, you, you make a joke about and it, it's funny because look, you know, you, you mean no harm by it. And I understand that. Um, but when we think about what the internet is, it is the new public commons, right? It is the street, right? When you look at the street, when you look at the bus, when you look at the subway today, uh, nobody looks at each other. Nobody's talking to each other unless they're going with each other. They, they brought their own crowd. Uh, instead, they're looking down at screens. And it is these screens that connect people uh, to the world. And while that is both uh, a means of interconnection and engagement, 
Um, not everybody has the skills um, and just the, the general health and the good privilege of the way, uh, the sort of characteristics they enjoy psychologically, that they can handle this. And so they end up becoming more isolated and they become more delusional uh, and they turn to violence uh, or self-harm. Um, and I, I think there's not a lot of ways for people nowadays to, to get that kind of help. Um, and I'm not sure we're going to see that get better until we as a society improve uh, in a real way politically, because right now, these are the topics and conversations that nobody talks about and nobody cares about because the world is on fire. I lied. One last question. <laughs> if you don't mind. I, I know sure, you, you probably have some dumplings to get to or something like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> or some vodka. Yeah, how about some pizza? But, oh, yeah. I, pizza <laughs> I don't drink. Yeah, pizza, pizza's not so... Russian pizza, it could, it's hit or miss. <laughs> I'm an American, man. You know they've got like Papa John's and Pizza Hut. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I know. I've had McDonald's in <laughs> Russia. I've spent a lot of time in Russia. They've got KFC, man. Yeah, I've been to... I stayed a lot in uh, Tverskaya. Tverskaya? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've been a lot, I've been a lot around there. So just one um, last question, because you, you were tweeting about it uh, a few weeks ago. It has to do with dark matter. Sure. It turns out that Lori Stroud, who was the one that brought you to the NSA in, in Hawaii, has been public in, publicly denouncing dark matter. I was just sort of wondering what you thought about that. Uh, so there's, <laughs> you know, there's a little bit of complexity to that story. Uh, Lori Stroud, uh, you know, <laughs> is represented a lot of these stories as like being my boss and this, that, and the other. Um, I believe she signed a, a form uh, that was to get the referral bonus, the signing bonus for me. Uh, but my boss actually sat in a different room and was not uh, Lori Stroud. Um, I, I did know Lori Stroud and, you know, seemed, seemed like a decent enough person. I didn't know her um, very well because we only worked together for a couple weeks. Uh, that was in my last position before I left. Um, but it's, you know, it's it's good that someone is coming forward and filling out the public record about what these companies are doing. At the same thing, time, I think it is profoundly troubling um, to see people uh, who were working with the NSA's uh, full capabilities um, to basically use mass surveillance, because the team that I was working with her on was a mass surveillance team, um, would take those skills and that understanding and then basically sell them, rent them out to the most authoritarian regimes in the Middle East uh, and use them um, against human rights defenders, right? And, and journalists and activists. And in her public statements, the only time she's actually bothered by this, when she has sent human rights defenders, in her own words, to prison, right? Uh, and I, I think they said, uh, the man's spouse is on like house arrest now and monitored by the secret police. The only time it bothered her was when an American got caught up in this, right? And if the full extent of your uh, moral universe is whether good or bad things happen to Americans, if you think human rights only belong to Americans, um, I wish I had had more than a few weeks to, to spend beside a person like that. Um, because I, I wish I could have reached them. 
Well, thank you very much for coming on Cyber. I really appreciate it. It's it's been a really interesting discussion. Um, any last minute advice for me if uh, the Canadian Federal Police <laughs> say I have to go to jail for this? Look, um, I, I'm I'm not going to tell anybody you know march into prison or, or do this that or the other. Um, but I, I will say this: um, the decisions that that people like you make. Um, to stand up for fundamental principles uh, that are the only thing that constitutes public rights. Um, you know, freedom of the press, freedom of speech, you know, what does that stuff mean uh, unless people actually stand and defend that? Uh, your rights are, are just letters on a page, right? They're, they're not going to jump off the page and, <laughs> and protect you. Uh, the law doesn't protect people. People protect the law. Um, and if there aren't people like you, who are willing to stand up and challenge the government when it goes beyond what is permitted, what it is authorized, uh, what it is able uh, to do. If no one will set boundaries and enforce them for the public's body of rights relative to the government's asserted privileges, we aren't living in a free and open society, right? We, we don't have rights. We have privileges and they're... Uh, sort of subject to revision um, and revocation uh, at any given time. Um, so I very much respect uh, people who are willing not just to say they believe in something, but to actually stand up for something. And I, I'd say thank you and good luck. Thanks very much, Ed. <laughs> Take care, buddy. Take care. <laughs> this episode of Cyber was recorded by Dean White edited by Dean White, produced by Lorenzo Franceschi Bicherai, and hosted by me. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.